All right. Welcome, everyone, to a new episode of the Roscoe's Wetsuit Podcast. I am your host, Toby Passman. On the show with me today, we have a special guest. We have Dr. Dasha Saikamaba. Um, Dr. Dasha uh, is a cognitive neuroscientist and memory researcher at the University of Oregon. Uh, she studies, she basically uh, studies how memory is used uh, flexibly to draw upon multiple relevant experiences to anticipate future judgments. Uh, the Brain and Memory Lab, uh, where uh, her lab operates out of, studies how memories are formed and how they are linked to each other to create internal representations of the world that can guide our behavior. We investigate, they investigate how different memory systems are implemented in the brain, how they represent information, and how they interact. In the quest for discovery, they rely upon computer-based experiments, cognitive models of behavior, and advanced functional MRI methods. Her research focuses on how we build complex knowledge representations, such as schemas, cognitive maps, or concepts from simple learning experiences. Stacking memories is building blocks. We form knowledge that transcends direct experience, allowing us to use the memory from the past to guide behavior in the future. Uh, Dr. Dasha is especially interested in how the hippocampus, a brain structure critical for memory for individual events in our lives, interacts with the prefrontal cortex and other memory systems to support the flexible use of experience. Her primary research tools include computer-based experiments, formal models of behavior, and advanced functional MRI methods. Dr. Dasha, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Absolutely. Um, so tell me a little, maybe we could just start off uh, kind of what your, what your lab is sort of focusing on right now. What, what sort of projects are you guys, uh, at least pre-COVID and, and once everything gets back to normal, what are you guys going to be uh, back to uh, working on? So um, I guess we have a couple of lines of research, but the big picture is what you um, introduced is in how not we just remember individual experiences from our lives, but then how we can then use it to build more complex knowledge. Because after all, it's kind of fun to remember, you know, your last visit with a friend or you know, your wedding or um, other kind of significant events in your life, but really we probably not, do not have memory to remember specific past events, but to be able to accumulate information over time so we can then make better decisions and um, kind of predict what's gonna happen next. So, um, so all the, most of the projects we are doing in the lab kind of revolve around that. And uh, so one line of research uh, focuses on how we learn new concepts. So essentially, for example, how do you know that this new furry animal passing by is a dog? Have you formed, do you, is it similar to previous past dog that you've encountered or did you form some kind of abstract concept what the dog is that you can then use so um, that's for example line of research where we can use these formal computational models that can help us guess what people are using when they are learning new concepts um, that 
you know, we make up in the lab since we can't control, we don't know what dogs you've met in your life, so we have to make our own new concepts. Um, so there we can kind of make a best guess from your behavior, what is it that you are relying on, and then we can also look in the brain and see is your, are your brain signals more consistent with the prediction of one model or another model. So that's one line of research, which was interesting because we found out that sometimes we can find the signatures in the brain of kind of both types of representations. To simplify it, it's not dogs, but that you are both referring to the specific dogs that you've met before. And also you've built this general knowledge of what a dog is and you are kind of tapping into that as well. So that was... Mm -hmm. Can you, sorry to interrupt you, but can you tell me a little, uh, what is, what, what's happening in the brain um, when, how are we actually forming these representations? Like with the example of a, of a dog, um, can, what, what brain structures are involved and how does that, how does that take place? So, uh, so essentially categorization task, which is, you know, you see a whole bunch of examples of a given concept and then you see new things that you haven't seen before and you have to decide whether it belongs to that concept or not, have been traditionally studied kind of in isolation from, you know, memory for specific past events because it was thought to be independent of uh, the hippocampus, the structure that allows you to remember specific events. So what we are finding instead that at least in healthy brain, the hippocampus is still involved and um, it seems to be doing kind of both things. It seems to be remember the specific dogs, again, our new artificial dogs that we create um, in the lab, but it's also building the generalized representation of the concept. And what does that mean that something that we are still sort of after, but you can imagine that maybe you see, um, again, going with the example of a dog, um, you see a whole bunch of different colors uh, of dogs and a whole bunch of different sizes. Um, but what you kind of extract over the exemplars, over the different dogs that you've seen, is kind of the more critical features. Maybe they don't have all possible colors, they have a limited set of colors, uh, but the color doesn't necessarily differentiate a dog from a cat. Um, then you learn that maybe size also is not perfectly diagnostic. You know, if it has the size of an elephant, well, that's not a dog, but you know, it has certain sizes. So you build, at least in kind of the current working hypothesis, you essentially build this average perfect dog that has all, that doesn't really exist out there in the world, but has embodies all the perfect doggy features, you know, the furry and barky and, um, you know, fetches the stick. <laughs> uh, you know, it embodies the perfect dogginess. And that's kind of that abstract representation, the ideal that you kind of build by taking all the characteristic features and sort of putting them together, although they've never been necessarily present together in any one particle dog that you've encountered. So that's kind of what we currently see. And hippocampus seems to be doing both. It holds on those specific dogs, but also helps to build this generalized representation um, you also ask kind of 
elsewhere in the brain, of course, hippocampus doesn't do it alone. So we are now finding that um, other, you know, we have multiple regions in the cortex. So I'm just gonna scooch over so you can see more my hippocampus behind me. So the little blue structure is kind of deep in the brain, the hippocampus. And then cortex is kind of the, the wiggly, um, the wrinkly part on the surface of the brain. So we are also looking at different um, cortical structures and we are finding that the anterior hippocampus, um, anterior portion of the hippocampus interacts more with um, parts of the cortex that have been in other research um, implicated in general memory generalization like schemas, your general idea of how a visit to a restaurant should look like, or semantic memory, your general idea of what is the meaning of words. Um, and posterior hippocampus that seems to be more holding on, on those, you know, specific memories is interacting more with cortical regions that um, have been previously shown to be important for memory specificity, like your ability to, you know, tell your Roscoe's Wetsuit podcast one from podcast two, what were the differences between the speakers and so on. Kind of this similar, keeping similar things apart versus putting similar things together. And there seems to be kind of a nice division of labor in the cortex and then the hippocampus does both but seem to be doing in distinct kind of portions of it. As you've been uh, explaining this, it's, it's reminded me a lot of the idea of uh, or I guess sort of the theory of like uh, the, the grandmother cell, or I think it's mm -hmm. what, it, uh, what else they call it, like the, Jan, uh, the Jennifer Aniston yeah, neuron, yeah. right? Um, is, that, is, there, is there a lot of support for that, that theory? Uh, my understanding of it sort of being that there, there's an individual cell or maybe a network of cells um, that are sort of, they, they are responsible for the, uh, the representation of some kind of visual stimuli. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. Is that sort of what you're talking about? Um, like, like say with a dog where um, you might have a specific neuron or set of neurons that are in charge of, of processing that information and, and store that information? So Eddie, so, so in general, the, the concept that's, you know, external things are somehow represented in the brain um, is uh, search for an engram. So engram is the neural impression of that external wor world or um, representation of the, the physical substrate of a memory. You were just starting to talk about enneagrams. Um, um, yeah, so I think that you were asking me about the grandmother, how it relates to grandmother neurons. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So um, essentially the grandmother neuron view, it doesn't really matter whether we are talking about specific, like how my brain represents Toby himself, right? Specifically versus how my brain represents dogs in general or what the book is or what an actor is or what Jennifer Aniston specifically is. But the idea is that for every item or person or object or place, or for every general concept, we essentially have one neuron that is optimally tuned for it. Um, and that's kind of 
you know, really happy when they see that specific thing and um, relatively quiet otherwise. It's shocking how well this works when, you know, people poke in the brain and do single cell recording. Um, but at the same time, nobody kind of assumes that this is truly how an engram works, right? As an engram being the physical substrate of the representation, because the probability that if you poke around the billion neurons, you happen to find the one Jennifer Aniston neuron is really small. Um, so um, I think that we look this fMRI, if it was really just driven by one neuron, we would never be able to see it because the resolution is very coarse. Um, in the because it's two millimeter by two millimeter by two millimeter, let's say. But um, in terms of neurons, it's thousands and thousands of neurons. So if one was driving it, we would never see it. So I think that in reality, we think that that's, you know, although it's a good way to look at neurons, um, in reality, um, brain seems to have distributed code. So it's kind of the pattern over this, you know, hundreds or thousands of neurons that probably represents, oh, you know, this is Toby, the, um, the host of the show, and or this is Dasha, or this is a dog. Um, and it doesn't really matter where in the brain it is. And this is also how we um, often analyze um, some of the data. We are looking at even pattern across voxels. So we are now looking over pattern across, you know, each little unit being now thousands of neurons. And we still look at you know, it's relatively higher here and relatively lower here. And this is the specific kind of signature of looking at a dog. And this is the specific signature of looking at Jennifer Aniston. And this is the specific signature. And that seems to be working um, better than looking for that one perfectly tuned neuron or perfectly tuned voxel. Right. Um, this is not really related to my research, but if you are interested in the topic, there is a really cool um, research from Google, which essentially looked at, um, you know, they have this deep neural networks that they train on a number of images and object recognition from visual images is now tremendously improved um, in the last essentially 10 years, although it was almost unsolvable up to then, like humans immediately recognize a dog, even if it's, you know, half covered with other stuff, while the computers really were struggling. Um, so now that there's been a breakthrough, and so the Google looked at what is it uh, that allows you to kind of classify the dog and a tree and the sun in images automatically now. And then they looked at those kind of neural, that a classifier can be thought as neural network. So they looked at kind of the different layers and they found kind of the well-behaving artificial neurons, for example, that were really tuned to the sun and were active every time that you see sun and not active when you don't on the image. And they deleted it, right? Because it's a computer program, you can just delete it. Nothing really happens. The network was perfectly happy to classify sun just as well. Um, but then they had a whole bunch of, they kind of were systematically deleting different 
uh, differently behaving neurons. And they found out sometimes they delete this very confusing neuron that doesn't behave very well. They have no idea why is it happy for this set of images and not happy for this other set of images. Um, but now suddenly the, the network wasn't able to classify sun anymore. So kind of this single cell recording, poking around, looking at, oh, can I find a neuron that best responds to this? And now let's study what it, its behavior. Maybe we were kind of like barking at a wrong tree with this approach because maybe that's not the most important neuron in the brain to actually solve the task. So right. Not quite my research, but <laughs> I totally love this this little piece, which which really kind of shows like we can find these grandmother neurons, but maybe their function, you know, maybe they are not consequential actually. Right. Well, tell me a little about so so your main tool of research uh, or your main kind of uh, instrument is the fMRI, correct? Mm -hmm. So, so tell me a little how that uh, enables you to study memory in the ways that, that you're looking at. Um, like, how, how do you utilize that tool? Mm -hmm. So, uh, kind of couple of the, um, so, so obviously, um, kind of the traditionally you would have invite people um, in an MRI session and then they are solving a task, uh, doing some kind of a memory, such a memory game while they are in the scanner and we record their brain. Um, and what we are looking at is correlation between what is happening in their brain and what is kind of happening in the task. Um, what the couple of uh, tools that kind of go a little bit beyond that that we are uh, using is uh, one is model-based MRI and the other is pattern information analysis. And I'll try to make it less um, jargony. So essentially in the model-based MRI, that's uh, the research that allows us to tell apart whether a person is accessing kind of the specific, the memories of specific dogs that they've encountered versus the ideal perfect dog uh, that they kind of extracted. Um, so we use uh, cognitive models because this um, there has been a prototype versus exemplar debate um, for many decades, essentially since um, 1968, when prototype theory was proposed by Mike Posner, who actually happens to be professor emeritus at the University of Oregon, um, who kind of came up with the idea that what people learn when they are learning new concept isn't necessarily the specific example you give them, but they form essential tendency or they extract essential tendency and that's what represents the concept. Um, so since then in the essentially the 40, 50 years since then, um, people came up with very formal mathematical models of what kind of response probabilities should be if person is accessing um, kind of the specific dogs versus the ideal average or perfect dog um, and what should be easy and what should be difficult kind of to classify. Um, and so we are using these models and not only we can fit it in the behavior, we can also predict what should happen in the brain if a person is accessing one representation, the specific dogs or the other representation, the, the prototype, the perfect dog. 
Um, and this, is, this has been really fruitful because in the behavior, you can only see one model fits better than the other. But it doesn't mean that people didn't also form kind of the other representation. And that's what we are kind of finding. So we are finding that even though people's behavior indicates that they are relying on that you know, perfect average dog that they somehow find as a summary representation of all the dogs that we've shown them, um, they actually do also rely on the specific representations and we can see it in distinct parts of the brain signal being kind of consistent with the idea. They're also kind of um, consulting that representation. And does how makes sense? It does, it does. So how similarly does this kind of function of memory work um, between individual to individual? Like, is there a lot of variability with what you see um, from one fMRI to another? even like when it's within the same task or does it generally show up in the same ways? Yeah, that's a great question. So uh, unfortunately, fMRI is pretty noisy because um, imagine that people actually do not care just about our task. They may be thinking about what they are going to cook for dinner or why did they have the argument with their friend um, before they came to our task. So there is a lot going on in the brain at all times, uh, even if there is no external task. So our task makes teeny bit of dent on, or teeny bit of an effect in their brain, but there is a lot of noise. So that's one source uh, where just because a scan is different from person to person, we cannot quite make the conclusion that it's a sensible individual difference, because it can be just the difference of what else was going on in their mind during that time. But we, um, we are seeing some seemingly systematic differences in behavior uh, between individuals. And we um, are seeing some systematic differences in what is easy for some people and difficult for other people. So we actually really are, um, one of the studies that is currently on hold is a large individual difference study where we want to really have the power to be able to look for these systematic differences. So some, some people really, really are perfectly fit by the prototype model and poorly fit by the exemplar model. And um, others, you know, a mi minority of people actually seem to be using the specific examples and not form the generalized representation. So we, Right now, it's kind of, we don't have enough power to know whether those are like real differences that, you know, carry out to other parts of their life, at least cognitive life. Um, so we want to kind of tackle that. So I have, you know, a few hundred people behaviorally tested in multiple generalization tasks, multiple memory specificity tasks, and see if there's really like signatures that are subgroups or there are in stable individual differences that we can then track what is happening in the brain. So far we have some hints, for example, people who are not well fit behaviorally by the prototype model don't seem to have that prototype. Um, so the prototype model would be the one which assumes that you formed the ideal dog. Um, they don't have really strong 
signal in one of the key regions where we are seeing the prototypes, which is kind of a, uh, it's called ventromedial prefrontal cortex. It's in the, um, kind of if you would touch the very front of the brain and then maybe kind of above your nose, um, go a little bit deeper there. Um, and we don't see as much signature of kind of these abstract representations being there. So it's something that we're really interested in is, is do people have different strategies? Is maybe some people's concept of a dog very different from other people's concept of a dog? And we know that this, this is true in extreme cases, for example, in autism, um, autistic people can have really, really good memory for specific things, but they simply don't generalize. So um, I'm having like a starting collaboration with um, um, researchers in the uh, Georgetown University who, who will be looking kind of at um, how does this work in autism and can we, do they simply use very different representation of the world? than kind of typical people. Right. Are there, are there any ways, uh, either, either strategies or I'm even like thinking like, are there any, uh, do, do we know of anything basically that would enhance this aspect, these aspects of memory um, that you could sort of, like an average person could train? Uh, do we know how to do that yet or? No, I don't think we know how to do that yet. We know that it's, it can be made easier or more difficult. So um, kind of other, uh, so in concept learning, for example, if we show them typical examples, it's much easier of a concept, something that is not too far from the prototype. People can extract prototype really well. If we show them something more atypical, um, it becomes really, really difficult. And it's interesting because if I show you a whole bunch of atypical dogs, a week later, you may not be even able to recognize those atypical dogs as even though you were trained on them, we, we told you these are dogs. But if you, we show you the typical ones, you can actually then abstract and generalize to the atypical ones. Uh, much better. So kind of how the task is structured that can help people to make those generalizations. Um, another paradigm when, which um, we've been using is, let's say, um, inference task, memory inference task. So for example, you learn that A relates to B and B relates to C. And now can you make the connection that A relates to C? And uh, we can help it if, for example, you encounter, you know, the AB relationship and the BC relationship in similar context, then it's much easier to make the connection. Um, so there are some ways where we can kind of, you know, some knobs that we can turn to make it more likely or less likely for people to um, succeed in generalization. But we don't know yet whether there is much we can do to kind of change the individual differences or help like make it a more um, generalizable trait <laughs> um, that would kind of work in other contexts. Have you noticed anything in regards to, to sleep or, or sleep deprivation and, and someone going through one of these tasks? Like would, would that 
significantly lower their ability to to perform one of these memory tasks? Yeah, so, so we, we don't do um, sleep studies in my lab, but in general, research has shown that sleep plays a huge role, especially kind of um, when you sleep on it, you get the gist. That's, uh, so it's much um, easier, for example, to, let's say the prototype, while the memory for specific examples is deteriorating, um, the memory or your ability to make the connection and um, kind of form the general idea that's like, that can actually improve with sleep. So you can be better the next day than you were the day you were learning. Um, so this um, definitely, <laughs> when I'm teaching um, intro psych, I always tell it to the students, right? Bring your prior knowledge in, um, that's gonna make it easier to learn and make sure you always like sleep well and sleep before the test and don't just cram before the exam all night long because then you will not be able to remember. Right. So yeah, sleep definitely affects memory, but it also disproportionately affect your ability to link things, um, related things kind of into more coherent knowledge. Um, and sometimes kind of the consolidation during sleep is the thing that helps you make those connections. Right. I, I think I also saw some research a few years ago about um, like even like naps, how like if a student, you know, say studies and then takes a nap and then takes the test compared to if they were just to go about their day without a nap that, you know, there's improved scores. I'm not sure if it was specifically pertaining to memory tasks, although I think it may have been, but I'm not, not positive yeah, on yeah. that. It definitely has one of the strongest effects on memory because um, what does going about your life uh, do is you are just encountering more and more information which will interfere with what you just learned. So um, the NAB helps prevent the interference of, you know, the new information makes you kind of push aside the old information that you learned before that. Right. And how does, how does the brain sort of, how do we decide upon, you know, obviously we would go crazy if we were able to actually remember like every single face that we saw, you know, if we're in a, a big city, if we saw, you know, remembered every single face that we ever encountered throughout the whole day, you know, we'd go crazy. You know, our brains are, they selectively remember what hopefully needs to be remembered. How does mm -hmm. that, how, how does that occur where our brain is able to, like pick which to what sort of stuff to remember what to prioritize yeah i think that you hit a big question kind of what uh i guess it's the next hundred years of memory research going to be focused on um but you you also mentioned the faces so i'll try to um link it to another example of the methods the fMRI methods that we are using that are a little bit different than this model based and try to kind of lump it in my answer so um so first if something is related to what you already know it's much easier to remember so you will remember better the faces that in some way perhaps are familiar they you know young people will better remember young faces and they'll maybe just generally represent the older faces as oh that was an older gentleman and then they in a lineup they may no longer be able to tell which older gentleman this was that they've met 
um, but they may be able to remember which specific new, you know, young college age phase it was if they are college students. Um, when something is emotionally loaded, that will definitely be better remembered. Um, so if um, perhaps, you know, the, you felt um, attracted to the face or you felt threatened by the facial expression of the person, that all can kind of heighten, um, improve your memory. So if it's in some way relevant to you, or you know you will need this person later. Um, you may it may boost your memory. So those are kind of all the little things that um, can decide what we will forget and what we will remember. Uh, one thing that is not necessarily often thought, um, talked about is that essentially a lot of this is uh, already happening way earlier than memory. It's happening at attention. You simply sometimes do not pay attention to the faces of the people you pass by. You don't really focus on the face to encode the features. And I don't mean encode as in like intention trying to remember, but you never really paid that attention to the face in the first place. Uh, so maybe even the perception wasn't really there and therefore the memory cannot be there. So that's happening um, as well not related to your question, but related to your <laughs> earlier question about um, other ways how we use MRI. Um, I was mentioning a little bit that um, instead of kind of looking for that perfectly tuned neuron, we are now looking at kind of patterns of activation and maybe um, we have one experiment with faces where we are looking at how do you represent different faces that you encountered and essentially how do you um, represent the identity of the face and then how do you represent if we teach you certain concept let's say these three faces belong to one family how do you start representing that and uh, kind of the way we do it is let's say if we have a um, patch of cortex or a patch of brain um, we looked at kind of activation in across a range of neurons and we look at how similar the activation to this phase looks to the activation to the next phase that we show them, right? Are they represented similarly? Are they diff represented differently? And we can see kind of what if a part of the brain is representing certain faces similarly and other faces dissimilarly, what are the features that that part of the brain cares about? Would we were um, surprised to find that learning affects representations almost everywhere in the brain where we look. So um, if you, if we show uh, participants' faces and tell them, okay, this is Peter Miller, this is Kyle Miller, George Miller, um, Paul Davis, and so on, and we have three last names that we kind of reuse, um, we, we can ask people behaviorally how similar these two faces look to you and they will start rating after they learn the family names uh, the faces from the same family as more similar than physically equally similar faces that are from different families and we manipulated the faces the physical similarity between faces by creating them as a blend from 
you know, real faces. Uh, so we now can make them more similar than they, than they would have naturally been. Um, and when we looked at what's happening in the brain, we assumed that kind of these maybe generalization regions will show, you know, increased similarity after learning, kind of representing the whole concept of a Miller family. Instead, we are seeing it everywhere. Visual cortex starts representing two Millers as more similar than two faces that we made, uh, artificially made equally similar, but we give them different last names. So um, that was kind of an um, exciting, unexpected, but exciting um, uh, recent finding, which really was only possible by using the fMRI in this other way, rather than looking at, you know, what's on and what's off. It's kind of, what's the specific way how this part of the brain represents the face? What is it highlighting? And looks like the whole brain starts highlighting the more relevant features, the ones that go with kind of the commonalities that are defining the family. Then other features that may be in common but are not related to the you know, family concepts. Sure. Well, awesome. Um, Dr. Dasha, we're, uh, we're coming up onto the end of the show. Um, I really enjoyed our, our discussion today. Uh, if people want to find out more information about your work or, or your research lab, where would you direct them to? So my um, lab website is uh, cognem at uoregon.edu. Uh, the cognem is a shortcut for cognitive neuroscience of memory. So C-O-G-M-E-M. Sorry, N-E-M, C-O-G-N-E-M cognitive neuroscience of memory dot uh, uoregon for university of oregon dot edu um, so there is a um, link to our papers which of course are you know take a couple of years to get out so you can also check out our uh, posters that we presented at conferences recently that's kind of more current snapshot of what we are up to um, and they can also email me at um, dash at uoregon.edu. The, the first name is just uh, D-A-S-A -A at uoregon.edu. Awesome. And for those uh, listeners who enjoyed the show today, go ahead and like and subscribe to our YouTube channel. We're uh, Roscoe's Wetsuit. And you can also find audio versions of the podcast available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and just about anywhere else you can listen to audio podcasts. Um, also go ahead and check out uh, we just launched Roscoe's Wetsuit Premium, which you can find at uh, patreon.com slash Roscoe's Wetsuit. Uh, Roscoe's Wetsuit. So go ahead and check that out. There's going to be some exclusive content on there. Uh, Dr. Dasha, again, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Really enjoyed our, our conversation. Well, thanks for inviting me. It was a pleasure. Awesome.